And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Hi, I'm Paul Merriman. I'm a financial educator, and I'm here to talk about you making more with your money. I, I saw an ad this morning when I was getting ready to come in and do this presentation, and it was uh, somebody was interviewing a potential client, I think that was a TD Ameritrade ad, and it said something like, wouldn't it be great if your money worked as hard as you do? And then I thought, because we're making this uh, taping this on April 14th, and I'm thinking about all of you CPAs out there who are probably putting in some long hours, and if you stopped and thought about it, wouldn't you say the same thing? Boy, if I could make my money work as hard as I do. And that's what this presentation is about. Your money, your clients' money, and the others who might watch this video, how to make your money work harder for you. I'm going to cover quickly 50 different ideas, facts, and, and ideas about successful investing that I hope will lead to making more money. And my goal is to have each one make at least a $10,000 addition to what you would have had otherwise. But in some cases, it'll be as much, believe it or not, as a million. And we can't forget the words of Warren Buffett when he said, you only have to do a very few things right to be a success as long as you don't do too many things wrong. So I'm going to focus on the right things and a few of the wrong things because I don't want you to make those mistakes. Now let's talk about the number one item, and that is an extra half of 1%. An extra half of 1% is so easy, but the impact of making an extra half of 1% is really life-changing. In a Merrill Lynch pub advertisement, they talk about how an extra half percent can add six years of income to your retirement. An extra one percent would add 12 years of income. And in a study that I did, I showed the impact of making eight versus eight and a half on an investor who puts away $5,000 a year for 40 years and then lives off it. And believe it or not, on that $200,000 investment, the difference is about $2 million. Diversification, the only free lunch. Listen, he, he, here's the expected return, according to the academics, of any single stock, whether it's large, small, growth, value. It's the average of all the stocks in that asset class. So if that's the case, wouldn't it make more sense to diversify and get rid of the possible risk of one company failing? Of course it, of course it will. And let's face it, if we knew what was going to work, we wouldn't need diversification. But there is nobody, nobody who knows what's going to work next best. Number three. This is interesting. According to the academics, 90 to 99% of the money that you will make in an individual investment in the stock market is going to be driven by the asset class. Very little comes from stock picking. Very little comes from market picking. So you need to select the right asset classes, and we have history on our side. We know exactly which asset classes have given us the best 
return over a long period of time. Well, let's talk about stocks, because stocks, we know, that's where we get the growth in our investment. Bonds are there for stability. Which is the riskier in the long term? Well, in a way, the bonds are more risky because if we're investing to supply ourselves income later in life, and if over a 40-year period, $100 in bonds grows to be worth $700, and this is what happened over the last 40 years, what about if stocks grew as they did, the S&P 500, to $4,500? See, stability is important in retirement. But when you're putting money away to have it grow towards retirement, you want the growth. And for every 10% more stocks that you put in the portfolio, you do add about a half of 1%. Now let's talk a bit about the S&P 500. This is the market. This is what we know to be the U.S. market, and it represents 85% of the value, the corporate public value of stocks. It's partly growth and partly value. It's a combination. It's what they call a blend. And its long-term return, depends on the period you look at, runs from about 9% to 11%. And what the, what the industry ha agrees is that it's very difficult, in fact, to beat the S&P 500. Well, it turns out it's very easy to beat the S&P 500. You just have to look at different asset classes. Let's talk about large cap value quickly. What do we know about large cap value? We know that it makes a little more, about 1% more a year than the S&P 500. But here's the interesting thing. If you had a portfolio from 1970 to 2016, and instead of having it all in the S&P 500, you put 10% in large cap value, it increases the return by about four-tenths of 1%. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. If we add small cap to the portfolio, small cap blend, a, ba a balance of, of, of growth and value, it adds about another two-tenths of 1% to the portfolio. So by, by adding the small cap and the, and the large cap, the large cap value and the small cap blend, you have already increased the return by more than one-half of 1%. All right, let's go on and look at the implications. Number eight, adding small cap value. All right, small cap value has the highest compound rate of return of all of the asset classes I'm going to talk about here in the next few minutes. And by adding that to the portfolio, it turns out it increases the portfolio because now we got the S&P and large cap value and small cap blend, and now small cap value another four-tenths of 1%. Now we are up to more than a 1% additional return at about the same volatility. REITs, now they don't add very much. They add about one-tenth of 1% to the compound rate of return in this portfolio that we're building, but it doesn't go up and down with the S&P 500. So real estate investment trusts in a tax-deferred account are a must, even if it only adds one-tenth of 1%. Remember, we're talking about the money working hard. So that's an addition you should be making. And now I'm going to get real lazy, real lazy, because I'm going to take care of a whole bunch of asset classes at one time. 
I want you to add the small blend and the small value and the large blend and the large value, but do it internationally. And by doing all of those at one time, it adds about seven-tenths of one percent a year to the return, less than two percent with each one of those asset classes, but all worthwhile. Now we have added about 1.8% to the S&P 500 by diversifying. And what happens when we diversify and you have some assets that go up and down at different times? It has a tendency to moderate the volatility. And so that return is about the same as the S&P 500. It is only when we add the emerging markets. And you'll see this in a report that will be part of a supplement that goes along with this whole, uh, uh, this whole video because each one of these things that I'm, I'm pointing to here and pointing out to you are covered in the supplement information. So you can dig deeper if you want. But you're going to find out that emerging markets is only going to increase it a little bit, some. But here's the part about emerging markets that we like. Number, number one, it historically has periods of huge returns. In fact, sometimes those returns happen when some other asset classes are struggling, like from 2000 through 2009, while the S&P 500 loses money, about 1% a year for, for 10 years. That was a period that emerging markets made around 15 16% a year. So you combine all those asset classes from 1970 to 2016, Ten of them. This is not like an impossible thing to do. You just simply need to invest in ten different equity mutual funds, and your compound rate of return, instead of being 9.3, would be 11.1. Now, it can get better. It can get better if you're willing to take more risk. And let's talk about how much risk that you have to take in order to make it worth your while. What if we took out all the growth? What if instead of having that large cap blend and the small cap blend in the U.S., we only held the small cap value and the large cap value? What would happen if in the international part of the portfolio, instead of having large cap blend and small cap blend, get rid of those, end up with some small cap value, large cap value international, and finally some emerging markets internationally. Well, here's what you'll see if you want to look at the tables and the supplemental information. About a 12.3% compound rate of return over this period from 1970 through 2016. Uh, that is a life changer. Number 14. Expect the unexpected. This is the, this is the nature of markets. They can't be predicted. We'd like them to. We can't even predict the next year, let alone the next 10 year. Who, who, who would have thought uh, in, in 2000 that the S&P 500 would only would actually lose about 1% a year for the next 10 years after having made 17.2% for the previous 25 years? It's not what people expected. Small cap from 1970 through 2000, underperformed large cap, not expected. Large cap value 
considered to be much better than the S&P 500 for the 1, 3, 5, and 15, and 20 years ending 1998, underperformed large cap growth. Unexpected. And if you don't, ex if, if you don't expect the unexpected, you're going to get into a funk. You're going to decide that nothing you're doing is right, and you're going to bail out. And unfortunately, too many people bail out at the wrong time. The most natural part time to bail out is after a bear market, after you've lost 20%. By the way, that's where a bear market starts, a loss of 20%. Well, Normally 20% doesn't make people bail out, but by the time you're down 30 or 40 or 50, all of a sudden people say, oh my God, this thing is going to be out of business pretty soon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the bleeding and get my cash where I can count on it. And of course, you know what happens the minute you sell out, the market goes up. In fact, you even think it's waiting for you to sell so it can go up. We know that's not true, but that's how we feel. Every three and a half years, on average, for the last hundred years, there's been a bear market. The average loss about 35%. So it's natural, these bear markets. Right now, here we are in, 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 in 2017, and it's been a long time since we had a big bear market. Much longer than average, that's for sure. So what do you do? Number 16, what do you do about a bear market when it happens? Young investors, I want you to... Listen to this. This is so important. Don't do anything. Keep dollar cost averaging into the market. Look at a bear market as an opportunity to make more money. It's the best thing that can happen in the early years of a young person's investing. But for those of you who, who really can't afford to lose half of your money, you better have the right amount of money in your portfolio in bonds to stabilize your portfolio during those terrible times. And in the supplemental information, there's a table called fine-tuning your asset allocation where I show you in 10% increments of stocks and bonds the kind of money you're likely to lose and the kind of money you're likely to make with the different combinations. Panic is normal. You've got to do everything you can to make sure that you stay on course. Number 17, keep your expenses. Remember, working hard. Working hard means keeping your expenses to a minimum because all of the studies show that the lower you keep your expenses, the higher the probability of better rates of return. Working harder. Now, what do we know? We know you can buy an index fund that, that, the, that the, the expenses are less than one-fifth of one percent. But according to Morningstar, the average expenses within uh, the large cap blend, the S&P 500 is about one percent, small cap blend about 1.2, large cap value 1.1, small cap value 1.3. And you can do almost any of these for one-fifth of one percent. Talk about hitting a home run. And the thing is, it's like bending over and picking up money off the ground. But it takes a long time to see that difference. Number 18, choose no-load mutual funds over load funds. This is a big deal. Load funds, you're going to pay maybe 5% up front for what? has nothing to do with the management of the fund. It has only to do with selling you something that 5% in an equity fund for the rest of your life is going to cost you approximately one-half of 1% 1 in the, uh, of the earnings. One-half of 1%.
Number 19, some mutual funds buy and sell a lot, some almost none. The average, according to Morningstar, of the buying and selling within mutual funds is about 85% of the value of the portfolio. According to studies, one of John Bogle's study at, uh, at Vanguard, it costs about 1% per 100% turnover. So when you buy a mutual fund that turns over 85%, you're giving up pretty close to 1% in earnings because of that turnover. So that means if you want to have your money work harder, get rid of the turnover. You're in control of, of whether your fund uh, has got a lot of turnover, and that's based on whether you keep it or you sell it. Number 20, choose index funds over actively managed funds. I mean, Index funds, everything I know about them, make them better than actively managed funds. They are cheaper. They have more diversification. They have less turnover. They have lower taxes because they have less turnover and they're not taking the profits like actively managed funds are. And they make more money. As a matter of fact, they're going to end up in about the top 10 or 15 or 20 percent in almost every 10-year period. What are the odds of finding that actively managed fund that's going to do better than that? Not good. And almost literally any asset class you want can be acquired as an index fund. Oh, Wall Street will try to tell you that it's okay to buy actively managed funds in the small cap or the, or the small cap value or some international asset classes. Don't believe it. The studies show that indexes, in fact, they even work better. They work better in those less liquid markets than the ones that the brokerage community advocates that you should, in fact, uh, be, uh, be going to the active funds. Number 22. If we want to believe what Warren Buffett says about, you know, you can be a success if you do a few things right. He doesn't say how many a few is, but let's say it's a couple dozen for the sake of, dis of discussion. As long as you don't do too many things wrong, well, there are probably 100 or 200 things you could do wrong. But let me just show you how easy it is to, to think that through. A lot of people recommend asset classes, but there's no question, at least, at least looking backwards, that they don't fulfill the mission of working harder. For example, from 1991 to 2016, gold compounded at 4.3%. Long-term U.S. government bonds, 8.2, almost double the return. And why do we like gold instead of bonds? Why would people like that? Because they see the gold as being this great defensive investment during the during the bad times. Turns out bonds do better in the bad times historically than gold. So I don't think you should have gold in your portfolio. I don't think that's going to work harder for you. The same thing with commodities. Look at the Bloomberg Commodity Index. How many people have said, oh, you got to have commodities because when the market goes down, commodities tend to go up. Well, you know something? That may be right sometimes. But if the returns on the way up when the market's going up are, are terrible, then what have we accomplished? Yes, maybe sometimes we have an investment that does better when the market's going down, but you also want something that over the long term grows if you're going to take risk. Gold and commodities are both risky. 
You want something that you want to hold to stabilize, stabilize with bonds. And you can see there the S&P 500 compounded at, uh, at about 11, 12 percent. Number 23, I love target date funds. I love the fact that they will take a 20-year-old and allow a 20-year-old to decide to invest in a, in a fund that's going to imply that they're going to retire in the year 2060, and they will make the decisions on behalf of that 20-year-old to, to move to bonds over time, start almost all in stocks in the beginning, but move to bonds later in life. Not so different than what a pension trustee would have done for a young investor. And they work. And they work. This is important. They are doing a great job. The problem is sometimes people don't understand the level of risk inside of those portfolios because it, it, this is just the way the industry works. They have a tendency to talk glowingly about the upside and minimally about the downside. We've got to be just as ready for the downside as the upside. But in a target date fund, as long as you make sure that you got low expenses, that they're low turnover, that they are doing it with index funds, I think you're on the right track. There is a problem. There are some weaknesses with target date funds, and they can be corrected. But I will tell you what the weakness is. They all are, it's a kind of a one-size-fits-all answer. One-size-fits-all. Well, one-size-fits-all. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that because what if I'm a 20-year-old and I want to take more risk than, than being like all the other 20-year-olds? The same could be true of a 40-year-old. So sometimes you have to do a little work. Maybe you have to do something to take on a little more risk somewhere else. For example, what would happen if along with yours, I'm thinking the 20-year-old or the 30-year-old or even a 40-year-old, what if you added one fund? What if you added a small cap value? You see, like at Vanguard, as great as they are, they have almost zero exposure to small cap value. Well, we already know from the earlier uh, uh, slides that the small cap value is an asset class that adds value over the long term. So you could choose to plug the hole in that particular target date fund by uh, by, by adding the small cap value. In fact, in number 25, I make the point that with 25% in small cap value, you will probably add, and there's an article that's, that is in the supplementary information, you will probably add about 1.5% to the compound rate of return of your target date fund. Now remember, we're always looking for that half of 1%. And I think before I'm done with these 50 items, you're probably going to see at least a dozen of those, if not more. Number 26, target, I mean, dollar cost averaging. It's amazing. Dollar cost averaging, the same amount of money going in every month, forces you to buy more when the market is down and dirty and uncomfortable to be buying. And it forces you to buy less when the market is high. And what do we know about any asset class that over the long term goes up? We know that over the long term with dollar cost averaging that you will come out ahead unless, of course, in the last years you have a horrendous bear market. I mean, that's always a possibility, and there are things you do about that 
when you're in the last years before retirement, like have a fair amount of fixed income. But early on, you want to be dollar cost averaging into those aggressive growth kinds of asset classes. Now, remember that dollar cost averaging, index funds, these are all things that are trying to take the feeling out of investing and have you invest, li literally, have you investing in an automated way. Number 27, oh my God, please do not pay commissions to buy any investment in this business. And the worst investments are where the commissions are the highest. Did you know that the reason they pay some out such outrageously high commissions on many products Wall Street products because they can't sell those products without enticing the salesperson with maybe a 10, maybe even a 15% commission. How much money do they charge commission-wise on a money market fund? Zero, because you don't have to work hard to sell it. How much for, for something like a uh, untraded, uh, privately held uh, real estate trust of some sort? Well, 10, 15% is not uncommon. What happens is when you get in those kinds of products, they tend to be illiquid, they tend to have these huge commissions, and they're almost impossible to get out of when you want to get out. And not being able to keep liquidity in an investment can cost you a fortune. In fact, what tends to happen is when things aren't going well in one of these illiquid investments, and nobody wants to buy them, Guess who buys them? Somebody who buys them with pennies on the dollars. That's when the wolves come out and, and, and take advantage of people because there's nobody there to make a good market in these illiquid investments. Do not pay commissions. High commissions are the worst in illiquid products. You can probably make all the money that you want with your investments without having to give up liquidity. Inflation amazes me how many people, how many people don't include inflation in their long-term plan. It's real. In the, in the mid-60s when I came into the industry, young people wanted someday to be worth a million dollars. It's interesting that today when I talk to young people, they say, someday I'd like to be worth a million dollars. Inflation from the mid-60s till to now would require that to be about five or six million dollars, not one million dollars. Got to have inflation in the plan. And by the way, when you don't do that, you are, are, are exposing yourself to one of the biggest bear markets. Remember, a bear market is a loss of 20 percent. Well, from 1967 to 2016, the buying power of $100 went down to $12.99. You want to talk about a bear market, and that was 4% inflation, by the way. Plan for inflation and invest for inflation. Number 30, Wall Street, they want you they want you to make changes because if they can't get you to make changes, they don't know how to make money off you. And the thing is, if you're invested in the right way, you shouldn't have to make changes. You shouldn't be susceptible to a terrible sales pitch. But the fact is that Wall Street has fewer and fewer people to go to as index funds become more and more popular. And guess what? That means they need to get their income from fewer people. 
which means in some ways their clients are at greater risk. So, I don't want you to be caught by the need for somebody to convince you you got to get out of that portfolio. you got to get into something that's going to make you some real money. Investors need to choose between Wall Street and what I call University Street or the academic community. Wall Street builds products that are profitable first and foremost for the shareholders of those brokerage firms. That, I mean, that's the way it works. That's how capitalism works. First of all, the company does well. Then you try to give a good product to the investor or to whoever bu is buying your products. But the fact is, is that that profit that Wall Street wants is keeping you from your money working harder. The academic community, and, and I'll refer to Dr. Fama and Dr. French's work here, the academic community has been focused on what you can do to take care of yourself first and foremost. I'll tell you a way to make better money. A lot of 401ks are not very good. They don't have great investment choices, but they got a match. All right, you take advantage of the match, absolutely. But then you move on to a Roth IRA or a regular IRA where you can have an opportunity to make a much higher return in other investment choices. Let's talk about number 33, rebalancing. Now, rebalancing isn't the magic bullet that a lot of people think it is. Rebalancing can lead to lower returns. As a matter of fact, if you rebalance too often, and a lot, some people rebalance as often as monthly, then what's going to happen in your portfolio, the money that could stay in some of the more productive asset classes are immediately siphoned off into the less productive asset classes and will do two things. It will reduce your risk because you're moving towards less productive asset classes that are safer, but it also reduces your return. So be smart about rebalancing. Once every year, maybe even every 18 months is probably often enough. And keep your emotions out of the decision-making process. We know from the Dalbar studies that the, while the market made 11% over a, uh, or 10.4% over a 30-year period, that the average investor made 3.7%. That's horrible. Wall Street Journal talked about a 10-year period that one of the best funds for that 10-year period that made 18% over 10 years, the shareholders who invested in it lost 11% a year. How could that be? Well, it can be because people have a tendency to get suckered when things are up and they're flying and to get scared out of them when they're down and dirty. So you've got to keep your emotions out. You've got to figure that out. It's not easy because your brain is always, as in number 35, when two things, this is what we know from, from studies that are done. In fact, I encourage you to read uh, uh, Jason Zweig's book, the, the, uh, Your Money and Your Brain. He talks about this study that shows that when two, something happens twice in a row, two heads in a row, uh, red comes up uh, uh, um, twice in a row, the brain then believes that there is, there is a, the, a prediction here that's that the next one's going to be another head or is going to be red. 
And that's not true. It's a 50-50 chance. But the brain thinks there's a pattern. And so there's a tendency for people to make that bet. It's a prediction addiction. And you don't want it because it hurts you. And you also want to realize about yourself that if you're like everybody else, you're overconfident. When people take surveys about how good they are as drivers or as spouses or, or as investors, 75% say they're better than average. Well, we know that can't be true. And in fact, it is that overconfidence. For example, men historically, according to studies, make less in the stock market than women for whatever part they have in the stock market. And why is that? It's because men want to trade. They think they can be, make more than the market by being smart, trading in and out. Women have a tendency to stay put. I don't know that this is particularly genetic, but the fact is, is that overconfidence costs investors, and a half a percent would be nothing. And we, as it says here, we tell ourselves things that we didn't, that, that we saw things we didn't, or that we know things we don't. As a matter of fact, I think in number 37, it's important to come to grips and on, be honest with yourself and ask yourself, what do we know we know? Well, we know we know something about the past. Well, what do we know we don't know? We don't know the future. You can't know the future. Well, what do we don't know we don't know? The answer is you don't know. You can't know something you don't know. Well, what about what we don't know what we, I'm sorry, what we know we know, but we're wrong. And that happens all the time that people just, they swear that this is going to happen, and it doesn't. And to the extent that you can figure out what you know you know, and I'm trying to share some new things maybe that you didn't know before, once you know these things, then do you do anything about it? And one of the challenges for investors is they don't do anything about it. And it's not easy to change. I guarantee, number 38, you'll lose money. If you follow my advice, I guarantee it. And people hate to lose money. It keeps people from taking risks because the idea of losing money is so uncomfortable. And when surveyed, surveys are taken, most people believe that the chance of the market going down a third is, is in a single year is a very high probability when in fact it's a very low, low probability. And whatever has most recently happened, particularly if it's bad, says, whoa, I don't want to be part of this. This doesn't smell good at all. And of course they wait then for the market to go way up before they're comfortable again. This is why dollar cost averaging sometimes can work so well. Number 39, I want you to I want you to get intimate with the losing years. I want you to take my fine-tuning table, and I want you to look from 1970 through 2016. I want you to see every losing years. I want you to see when two or three losing years in a row happened. I want you to see where a number of years in a row the market made very little, even if it made something. I want you to understand what natural volatility looks like. And number 40, the belief that the more and the closer you stay on top of things, the more you're going to make. That is totally false. If all the studies show that people who simply buy and hold in index funds and ignore the day-to-day -day noise are making more money, 
than those people who are trading and dashing in and out of the market because they're staying on top of things. Isn't there a lesson in there for us? 41, there is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. And look out, because people will tell you that what they recommended worked out. Well, what people will do is they'll tell you about some of the things that they recommended in the past. And those will be the things that worked out. Salespeople do that, you know. And so you've got to protect yourself and understand that the only past, if you want to look at the past for information that's meaningful, look at 30 or 40 or 50 years of the past. Now we're talking about something that is, in fact, meaningful. And, of course, at the end of the day, protect yourself through massive diversification. Number 42, the fear of making a mistake. Listen, making mistakes is part of the process. Losing money is part. Being uh, in, a, in, in a position that somebody else is making more money is part of it. The S&P 500, according to most people, has this amazing long-term track record. It is absolutely filled historically with companies that failed. I mean, there was a huge amount, Enron, Eastern Airlines, Washington Mutual. I mean, you can go on and on about the companies that didn't make it. Failure is normal. That's, of course, why you want to diversify. You don't want that normal thing to happen to all of your money. And remember, sex, food, and money, three of our favorite topics, right? Those are not intellectual de decisions that we're making. They are all emotional. And the problem is, 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 is that with a lifetime of emotions around these things, it is truly easy to make the wrong decision. And understand that even the investment advisor that may be working with you, they also make decisions about sex, food, and money emotionally. I don't think I want to do business with somebody who isn't doing it the way that I believe. I do have somebody who, an advisor who takes care of our investments. But everything that he does are things that I believe are the mechanical way that I want my money managed. I just don't want to be the one doing it. And now to you CPAs. You're in such a wonderful position to help people. See, I write articles. I do all sorts of things to try to help people do better with their money. I do podcasts. I do videos. But I'm an educator. And I'm not there when people are making these important decisions. And the beauty of what a CPA or an accountant knows about their clients is they know the truth. They can see if they're not doing a good, a good job. They can see the, the, the losses that maybe a client has sustained. They can see maybe the illiquid investments that people are getting caught in and that they talk to you about. They don't know what to do about these things. Well, one thing is to stop doing those kind of things in the first place. You are in a position to give them guidance. 
And I don't mean that you have to necessarily be an investment advisor, but I do think you need to move them in the right direction. And I think that you can. I know that people expect CPAs to be experts on investing. I think that's because you're experts on the most important, one of the most important areas about money in your life, and that's about your taxes. And maybe you go to them for other kinds of help other than taxes, but they're financial decisions that, that, that you make. You give them good advice, but they all also then conclude you understand investing. And you may not, but what you can start doing for those people is reading the work of people like Larry Swedrow. Larry Swedrow writes some wonderful articles uh, about investing. Now, for what it's worth, he also believes in value. He also believes in internationals. He also believes the kinds of things that I believe. So when you read Larry Swedrow, you can always pass one of his articles along to a client, maybe to get them thinking what I would call the right way. Alan Roth, Jason Zweig with, uh, with the Wall Street Journal, straight shooter. There are a number of them, and I really hope that you will start reading some of the material at dfaus.com. Now, I am no longer in the investment management business. I'm purely in the educational business. But I can tell you, between Vanguard and DFA, that's where my money is. And there's reason for that. And it's not because I think those people know where the market is going. I think they understand the asset classes that are likely to do better in the future. And I think they're working hard to make my money grow more because of the way they run their mutual funds. I think it's also important that at, at some point when you see somebody assuming that something that's been very good in the past is going to continue to be good, like think about the people who are going to retire in 2000. And the S&P 500 for, for, for the last uh, 25 years has compounded at over 17%. I'm not surprised that your clients think they're financial geniuses and that they know how to invest. They were there for one of the great bull markets of all time. But should they be counting on that in their retirement? They need to understand how important luck is and to, and to figure out how to guard against that luck running out because they don't want to have to go back and re-earn that money. And, and then after that 25-year period that the S&P 500 did so well, let's say that you got, you got conservative and you divided your money half in the S&P and, and, and half in bonds. For that next 10 years, 2000 through 2009, the annual return was 2%. And that's after it went down for three years. On the other hand, in, in that period from 1975, the start of that 25-year run, if you look at how you would have done with half in stocks and half in bonds, you would have made over 11% a year. Boy, now is that a great way to start a retirement where maybe you're taking out 4 or 5% a year.
luck. It's a big deal. What's the best advice we can give? Well, if I had to say one thing, one thing in terms of telling somebody to do something, that would be, I mean, there's so much that we can't control. The future is unknown. Our health, the economy, our children, family needs. I can't believe it's something like, I don't know, 60% of people coming out of college are planning on living with their parents. Um, and, and the job, all these things can change. And so we need to control what we can. And what can we do to control and put the probabilities in our court? Well, what we can do is oversave. I did not retire until I knew I had way more than I needed to retire. Because I wanted to be able to take out a high percentage of my income. And the only way that I could do that and sleep at night was to oversave. And I have found over the years that people who have oversaved ha have, in fact, had the greatest peace of mind and make everything mechanical. I mean, I've been talking about mechanical all the way along here. Everything that I'm recommending, whether it's rebalancing, dollar cost averaging, index funds, the use of target date funds, all about mechanical. Take the emotion out. And if you're going to have people working with, a, well, with an advisor, if you can give them any recommendations, and if you can check to see if this is true, you'll be doing them a big favor. And answer this. Are they competent and ethical? Is the firm they work for competent and ethical? And are the products competent and ethical? If the products are overpriced, if the products don't represent the best asset classes, if the products aren't properly diversified, if the products are actively managed and costing the, the client taxes and expenses that they don't have to pay, come on, that's not showing great competence. And I think if you can make that point to a client and then give them some information to read to head them in the right direction, I think that you will have been of great service. Number 50, the best investment advice I know. I said it was to save more, uh, but beyond that, in terms of a one-liner, how about this? Never take a risk that you don't expect to receive a premium. Don't take a risk for which you don't expect to receive a premium. Let's think about that. What do you mean, a premium? Well, for example, if somebody's going to sell you a load fund, is it a risk that you just lost 5% to buy that load fund? Yes, that is a risk, okay? Now, if you pay 5%, but in 20 or 30 years, you've made more money than you would have made if you didn't pay that commission. All right, you won. But the odds aren't in your favor. The same thing with high expenses. The same thing with putting all your money in one stock. Huge risk. And maybe that one stock will end up to be Microsoft. But what if that one stock 
was Microsoft starting in 2000 instead of seven, eight, or 1986. Every risk you take, taxes, expenses, uh, not having a much enough diversification, going into illiquid investments, hiring an advisor, you must make more than you would have on your own. Or, like with me, it's about peace of mind. I'm willing to pay for peace of mind. Let me recommend some basic books. And by the way, as I mentioned in the supplemental information, you're going to get uh, uh, links to a bunch of articles uh, and books and other things that I think will support what I've been talking about in this presentation. Mutual funds for dummies. Every investor should read that if they want to understand the business they're in of investing mutual funds. The Little Book of Common Sense Investor, Investing by John Bogle. Great book on indexing. Not a great book on asset allocation or distributions. Your Money and Your Brain, about the psychological end of investing. Any book or article by Larry Swedrow. And you might even go to the library and check out Financial Fitness Forever, that's mine, or read the articles Listen to the podcast at paulmerriman.com. I hope that's helpful. I hope from this point on, you're going to figure out how to make your money work. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.